Well, today we are finishing our January sermon series that is on covenant membership. And what we're considering this year is how we can hashtag thrive the five. That's a bad hashtag, I know, but let me explain. We, okay, thank you. I don't think we've used it on social media. It wasn't for social media, it was just for us. So that is thrive as a church over the next five years. Last week we talked about, anybody remember what we talked about last week? It's something hard to remember. That's, we're talking about how busy we are. Last week we talked about an edifying church, and this week I want to talk about a multiplying church. So I'd invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 18, verses 13 through 27. Young disciples, you'll need that passage written down on your sermon guide. You can find that on page 60 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs. So here's the main idea that I'm going to be unpacking in two points this morning. A multiplying church, young disciples, you need that word, multiplying. First, wisely recognizes its limitations. Young disciples, you'll need that word. It will come back up later, so if you miss it now, you'll get it later. And second, a multiplying church humbly raises up leaders. With that said, church, please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word. And if you're not able to stand, please stand with us in your hearts. Church, hear the word of the Lord. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. And when they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another. And I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice, and I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said to him. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Church, the Lord has spoken to us. Let's say this together. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. 
Now let me start today with a story that will make some of you cringe a little. So one evening, I was sitting in my house in East Africa with my missionary teammate, when suddenly we noticed something pretty big come under the front door and wander into the living room. Now there was about a centimeter gap between the bottom of the door and the floor. Now interested as to what exactly was taking refuge with us for the night, I got up and went over to examine. And it was a spider about the size of a doorknob. Mm. And of course, I did what any young man does who aspires to be a good husband someday. Let me model it for you. All right, squish, game over, clean my shoe off, move on to the next thing, right? Except something happened that I had never experienced before. The instant that I raised my foot, in a circumference about the size of a basketball, exploded thousands of baby spiders. I told you. I gave you a warning. Now, of course, my teammate and I did what any fearless young men would do in that scenario. Ran around the house like it was on fire, <laughs> screaming. But eventually, we got our wits about us and grabbed a broom and began frantically sweeping them out the door, sending them out into the world. We're <laughs> sent. Curtis, you know what I'm talking about, man. Remember that time you squished a bug up here while Pastor Jason was preaching? <laughs> Hard to forget. Hard to forget. Now, um, some of y'all are like, why, Brad? Like, was that necessary? Well, here's why. Because in today's passage, we have a similar paradigm. Someone who is single-handedly carrying on his shoulders the weight of thousands while they are wandering in search of refuge. His name is Moses, and he is the man whom God called to lead his people out of slavery. You may already know this story, but to catch us up, with great miracles, God saved the people of Israel from Egypt. But God didn't just want to save them. He wanted to make them fruitful and multiply and display his glory among the nations. You see, he is, and the people of Israel, seeking to restore his original desire for all creation. So he continued to deliver them from things like thirsting and starving to death in the desert. And then in chapter 17 of Exodus, from attacking enemies, the Amalekites. And in battle against them, God told Moses to intercede for the people by raising his arms in prayer. And there we read, Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. 
But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands. Young disciples, you need to write that down for your sermon guides. One on one side, and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. You see, it's not that Moses had special strength, like he doesn't even fight in the battle. It's that he was the mediator through whom the Lord would bring his deliverance. But y'all, that's a lot of weight on one man's shoulders. Or in this case, his arms, right? Arms that could not remain lifted forever. And so if we are to take some general application for our church today, as we seek to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with God's glory, then we can start here. A multiplying church wisely recognizes its limitations. So following their deliverance from the Amalekites, we read this in chapter 18, verse 13. The next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? And all the people stand around you from morning till evening. Well, Moses' father-in-law asked a really good question here. Like, but before we get to that, let's ask this question. Who is Moses' father-in-law? Well, meet Jethro. For some of y'all who've been around a little while, it's not Jethro from the Beverly Hillbillies. Okay, different Jethro. Jethro is described as the priest of Midian. And he has just arrived from there with Moses' wife and two sons. And the reason why he came is because he had heard all that the Lord had done for Moses and his people. <clears throat> After hearing the full story from Moses, Jethro says that the Lord is greater than all gods. And he makes sacrifices and offerings to the one true God. Y'all, that's the kind of visit that you dream of from your father-in-law, right? Get down with that. But then... Uh-oh, Jethro starts asking questions. Is this now devolving into the stereotypical visit from the in-laws? Is this like that moment in Christmas vacation when Clark has worked so hard on putting up all those lights and his father-in-law says, the little ones aren't twinkling, Clark, right? <laughs> like, I know great things have been happening, but look at that one thing that's not great. I'm going to point that out. No, I don't think that that's what's happening here with Jethro. We get the sense that Jethro is speaking from wisdom rather than from malice. He's curious rather than just critical. Why are you sitting here alone all day long as a judge for thousands of people? And Moses replies in verse 15, And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God, and when they have a dispute, they come to me. And I decide between one person and another. And I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Now part of what Moses is doing is really good. Like you've got to remember that the people of Israel at this point, <clears throat> they had no scripture to guide them. Because Moses hadn't written it yet. In fact, what he's doing here may be the method by which the law of God developed. It was all practical for everyday life. It taught people how to live in a right relationship with God and with one another. Once again, he's a mediator for the people. He's receiving from God. He's delivering it to them. And that's really good. 
But the other part, not good. As Jethro recognizes in verse 17, Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out. For the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now Moses wasn't just standing and teaching the crowd. Now he was operating like the police, the judge, the department of motor vehicles, the theologian, the counselor, the pastor, all in one. And listen, no one is this omnicompetent, right? No one can, can do it all. This was the perfect recipe for burnout. And it may have been coming from good intentions, but it certainly was not flowing from wisdom. And it may have even been mixed in with control or anxiety. Think like Peter trying to micromanage the disciples in ways that no one asked him to. Or Martha trying to be hospitable in ways that like no one expected. And they end up with what? Missing out on the Lord in their midst and frustrating everyone around them at the same time. And so don't miss that part here in Jethro's words. He says, you and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out. Anybody here like waiting in lines? Nobody, right? How about trying to check out at Kroger when it's real busy and there's only one cashier? Self-checkout. And all the self-checkouts are closed. Okay? Don't mess up my analogy. And then it devolves into a pushing match as to who can get there. Like the line disappears. How would you feel about that? Sound enjoyable? How about someone murders your child? No, I don't want that to happen either. How about someone murders your child and you wait for weeks to finally see Moses and he has about five minutes to try your case? How would you feel about that? Not go over well. And so later in the Old Testament, it was this kind of delay and justice due to disorganization that allowed Absalom to lead a revolt against King David. And all that is really not good. Brothers and sisters, this is what happens when we don't recognize our limitations. There are some of you in this room who really need to hear this. Now be discerning. There are others of you who don't need to hear this. You need to hear the opposite. You need to be challenged to step up. But there are some of you in this room who really need to hear what I'm about to say. You live your life constantly teetering on the edge of burnout because without anyone even asking you, you take on the weight of the world and you try to do everything yourself. And you never pause long enough to be curious and ask the question, why do I do this? Why do over and over I overwhelm myself to do all these things that if I think about it, no one is asking me to do? And that applies to no one more deeply than yours truly. Okay? I'm one of those people. If I lean into this tendency in myself, rather than embracing my limitations, then me and this church will wear ourselves out real quick. And for that reason, I want to put before you today the leadership structure of our church and how we seek to multiply our fruitfulness instead of burning out. It starts at the bottom because 
to be a leader is to bow low and wash feet. It is to die to yourself so that others may live. And so at the bottom, in the roots of our church, is a plurality of pastors. Now, if you've never heard of that word plurality, let me explain it to you. And I will say one time someone very loudly told me in a coffee shop that it was the dumbest thing that they've ever heard. It doesn't it doesn't work this way in the world, but this is what the scriptures call us to. A plurality of men, of servant leaders who share equal authority in leading the church forward. Do you think that's hard? Like, do you experience the difficulty of that, working it out in a marriage between two people? Imagine four, five, six men, all their many giftings and quirks and sins, trying to figure out how to honor one another, to not fight against one another in order to lead the body forward, okay? So we begin with a plurality of pastors. Underneath that, or above that, I would say, is covenant members. It's like, well, that doesn't make sense. Well, think about it this way. We are a church that's not only elder-led, but we're also congregational at the same time. That means if you're a covenant member, you're the one who actually chooses who the pastors are. And you're the ones who actually hold the pastors accountable. If they're not doing what they ought to be doing, you can remove them. And so even as a covenant member, you have servant leadership responsibilities if you live up to them. And then from there, we go to three different roles that I would say are equal in their importance in the local church here at Antioch. First of all, deacons. These are servant leaders, men and women, who lead forward ministries so the pastors can focus on word and prayer. And then there are facilitators. And facilitators, we don't call them deacons, but in the structure of our church, where we say that family groups are central, the people who lead those family groups are of utmost importance on the same level of deacons. They are leading forward ministry, a family group. And then beside that would be staff members. We are not a staff-centric church. Our goal is not to just continue to add more staff members every time we feel the pressure of growth. We want to raise up everyone to share in that work. But we do have a number of people that we supplement in order to help the church be organized and function. And then beyond those in the ministries led by deacons, they develop team members who step up and help them to lead that ministry forward. And then facilitators work with candidates, people who are interested in being facilitators one day, and host those who host family group in their homes, a very important ministry in itself. And then staff will have what we might call ministry assistants. These are people that they ask specifically to help them in some way to do their particular role and responsibility. Now, do you know what this declares? This declares that no one is omnicompetent. No one can do it all. I can't do it all. The pastors can't do it all. The covenant members, the deacons, the facilitators, the staff can't do it all. Antioch Church is not burnout church, okay? How much less fruit will we bear if we burn ourselves out? It is from biblical wisdom that we do not only declare this, but we continue to practically apply it in our midst. Church, a multiplying church, recognizes, wisely recognizes its limitations. But don't stop there. Even more importantly than that, a multiplying church humbly raises up leaders. Earlier we cut off Jethro mid-sentence. But he continues to Moses in verse 19. 
He says, now obey my voice, and I will give you advice. And God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them to know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Now, once again, we get the sense that Jethro isn't speaking as a cranky father-in-law here. Instead, he speaks as an older man who gives wise words. But he does so humbly, without controlling. Later, he will literally say, if you do this, Moses. He's not pressing himself onto Moses. His motive is for Moses to thrive, not for himself to be glorified. And there is a big difference And how older men treat younger men. And notice that he doesn't detract Moses from the work to which God has called him. Everything he says here is exactly what Moses was seeking to do as a mediator between God and his people. Listen, this is maybe the other side of what I said a minute ago. Recognizing our limitations does not mean that we are no longer responsible for what God has commanded us to be and to do. I have seen people who for the first time become aware of a concept called boundaries. Don't try to do everything. You don't have to, you don't have to be everything that everybody is asking you to be. But listen, that doesn't mean that you just use boundaries right and left in order to not do anything. Okay, There's balance and wisdom and discernment that this takes so jethro doesn't detract moses from this just encourages him to do it in a wiser humbler way and so here's what jethro says that that looks like in verse 21 and young disciples this is jethro's advice to moses you'll need that for your guide moreover look for able men from all the people men who fear god who are trustworthy and hate a bribe And place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. So what's Jethro saying here? He's saying, Moses, multiply yourself, man. There are others whom God has provided who have the character and desire and ability to lead with you. These are leaders whom Moses will teach, and then they make up the leadership structure of Israel. Like, they bring justice, and they teach people how to live in a right relationship with God and with one another. And then when they reach their limitations, then the issue can go to Moses. It's like, kind of like the Supreme Court concept. Now, what kind of people, though, were these meant to be? First of all, Jethro says, they are to be able men. The Hebrew word for able carries the sense of of strong in a soldiery way. But we can get from the context that this has more to do with character than physique. True strength comes from Christ-likeness. For this reason, the New Testament parallels Exodus 18 with raising up deacons in Acts chapter 6 and raising up pastors in 1 Timothy chapter 3, both of which make what the primary qualification? Anybody remember Acts 6, 1 Timothy 3? What's the primary qualification in general? That you can teach, that you're really smart, that you're good-looking, that you're physically strong, 
No, it's character. It's men who are filled with the Holy Spirit. It's those who are blameless. And Jethro explains his meaning further by specifying these are, quote, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. You see, God-fearing men do their work as before God and not men. Regardless of how big or how small the job is, they will bow low and wash the toilet if that's what needs to happen rather than pressing their way in with an agenda and say, how can I get up on stage? How can I be in charge of a ministry? Well, here's your ministry. There's a toilet back there clogged up. Could you clean that up for us? Brother, I will as though I am doing it unto the Lord. Like That's what he's describing here. Trustworthy men, like you can count on them. They'll show up when they say that they will. Like you don't have to question their motives. Bribe-hating men, what's that? They are impartial, honest, and not in it for money or glory. And so these leaders were full of integrity and had the courage to like get in there and like get in the mess of carrying the burden with Moses. Thus, Jethro concludes, if you do this, God will direct you. Young disciples, you need that word, direct. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. And disciples, you need that word, peace. Now, in other words, Jethro is saying, God will bless this effort to multiply yourself, Moses, and it will be fruitful for you and for the people. You will thrive. And this brings us to what has been the most consistent theme of the pastor's work on five-year vision, the raising up of qualified leaders. If we want Antioch to thrive as a growing church that remains small because it continues planting churches and sending out missionaries and church planters and church revitalizers and core teams and men and women who want to serve in vocational, bivocational, or lay ministry, or who simply want to display Christ's glory among the nations as God moves them into different places. If we want that, then we must intentionally multiply leaders. We must, let me specify this in three ways. First of all, communicate our development processes for potential leaders. You want to be a pastor? Here's the way. You want to be a deacon? Here's the way. You want to be a facilitator? Here's the way. You want to be a missionary? Here's the way. We need to lay those out and be clear about them and invite people into them. Second of all, we must increase our support structure for existing leaders. We have a lot of trust in our leaders. Therefore, we don't micromanage them. That's not letting people be set free to lead. However, we do have a tendency to wind people up and let them go. And we're not checking in and we're not providing accountability and ongoing encouragement and training. We don't need to continue in that way. We need to have that support structure in place. And then thirdly, we need to provide an environment where people can learn by trial and error. They don't have to get it perfect. They don't have to get it right in all things. We can follow up and coach them through as part of the learning process. In other words, we must share the load. We must, quote, equip the saints for the work of ministry. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12. And we must do so always in a way that places intentional gospel relationships at the center of those processes. And I hope, let me pause here and take a drink. I hope that the pastors have enough credibility with you to hear what I'm about to say next. The credibility that comes from considering women as equal recipients and participants in God's mission. 
such that they are raised up as servant leaders in every role of the church outside the pastorate. And the credibility that comes from seeing men as fully affirmed sons of their heavenly father, such that we do not try to motivate them through fear, guilt, or shame like the devil. Here it is. Jethro specifies men as those who need to be raised up. Acts chapter 6 specifies men as those who need to be raised up. 1 Timothy 3 specifies men as those who need to be raised up. Listen, God's church thrives when able men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, step up. The first four chapters of Genesis shows us that like when godly men step up as servant leaders, it brings chaos into order and it displays God's glory as he intended. But when they don't, what happens? It brings quickly order back into chaos and God's glory is suppressed. It is without question, y'all, that Satan is still working his Genesis 3 scheme of destroying biblical manhood. Like if you don't see it in a culture that targets little boys for gender confusion and categorizes any form of masculinity as chauvinistic threat to society, then you see it in the opposite reactions. Okay, There is a reason why Men are drawn to the voices outside the church like Tate Mason and Jordan Peterson and Joe Rogan and then to voices inside the church like Doug Wilson and Owen Strand and Vody Bauckham. I'm not canceling those guys out, all right? Maybe some things that you can learn from those men and apply to lives through the lens of the gospel and scripture. But these are voices that we as pastors know you are listening to, okay? And if we don't put forward a vision for biblical manhood and model it and foster it in the context of intentional gospel relationships, then someone else will define it for us. The way in which we seek to do that can be summed up with this set of ordered priorities. First of all, men, your first priority without question, without deviation, is the Lord himself. Loving him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. All of your capacities given to him such that you love him and want to know him and want to know his word and you want to obey it. You want to talk with him and hear from him. That brings chaos into order in a man's life. But then second priority here is marriage. Okay, so I'm not saying, single men, that you are less than a man if you are not married. But I'm saying to those who are married, this is the order of priority. Before God and then your marriage. We are looking as pastors at men who are managing their households well. The Bible calls that as a qualification for servant leadership in the local church. Who is bringing the chaos that marriage can be into order by loving their wives the way that Christ loved the church. And then third, children. All right, We are looking for men who out of the prioritization of God and marriage then bring out of chaos, really easy to see, into order 
the care and discipleship and guidance of their children. And then finally, work. Men, we were created for it, right? But we often get it all mixed up in these priorities. And this is a place where God wants us as men to be out there in the world in our unique vocations. And for some of us, that means in the local church. Bringing in all the chaos back into order as men created by God were intended to. Okay? And this might seem really easy and oversimplified. But we as pastors find in our own lives and in our observation of other Christian men, the easy part here is getting this upside down and backwards, okay? When our God is our work, when we are lazy and we won't work hard, when we genuinely love the Lord, but we aren't leading anyone else to love him too. When we make the pursuit of marriage the solution to all our problems, if I can just get there, then manhood will work out for me. When we neglect our families because we won't let the Lord deal with our sins and the things keep us bound by shame, when we leave our wives to be the spiritual leaders of our homes, or we don't say to them, I want to lead us forward here. When we make children the priority to the neglect of our marriage, this is something that our culture is doing to Christian men. It's such an important thing to pour into the life of your children, but as a Christian man who's bringing chaos Back into order, sometimes you have to say to your wife who is laboring and pouring herself out over her children, hey, you are more than a mom. You are a woman, you are a daughter of God. And you are my wife. And we're going to take a date night. And when I walk in this door, I love little Billy, but I'm coming for you. I'm going to give you a kiss. So all our kids see that. Smoochy kiss. Is that what Bluey says? give you a smoochy kiss and then I'm going to hug up them kids and show you that daddy's home fully present to give everything I've got left into this family but baby you are my priority okay that's what blesses and builds up children when we don't view part of our work as building up the church you're so busy in your work life you have nothing left to get in here and get in the mess and bring order out of this chaos or when we are content to live without intentional gospel relationships dudes can do that right I'm good Tough exterior, inside stuff's broken, but we're not relating to anyone or letting anyone in on that. And what we as pastors want to speak over ourselves and you, our brothers, another hashtag, I'm sorry, that came from our pastor's retreat. You are made for more. And this is not made for more in the like Mark Driscoll style, like, who do you think you are? which really just aims at getting you to glorify a man as omnicompetent and build him a bigger church. That's not why we're motivating men right now in this sermon and hopefully continually as pastors so that you can build us a bigger platform. This is made for more in the way of the glory of the God who is omnicompetent, but he's too good to keep all the work to himself. See that? He could have done it all from the beginning. 
But he says, I create you and I release you to go do this. This is the God who in Genesis 1 doesn't create Adam and say, you sit right here, son, while I go be fruitful and multiply and display my glory among the nations. Nor does he say, you better be fruitful and multiply, son, because I'm going to be watching you. No. Some of you have those voices in your head still. Some things your dad said to you or didn't say to you. It's not God. What's the spirit of what God says? The spirit of what God says in the book of Genesis is this is what I made you for, my boy. Now get in there. Go build that canal. Go make some wine. And I want to taste it. Oh, that was good. Little bitter. <laughs> Let's try it again. And I want to try it with you. See what I'm saying? God's so proud of his son. There's nothing holding him back. Get in there. It's chaos in that garden. Keep it and make it beautiful. With your wife by your side. With your children raised up to multiply this goodness. That's the spirit in which we as pastors speak to you, our brothers. This is the manhood you were made for. And this is what the pastors are constantly looking for and desire to cultivate in our church. If you're ever like, man, the pastors just overlook me. They never are checking out my life and what's going on. We are looking at every man in the church. Don't take that in a burdensome sort of way. We heard a man one time who said to us, man, if I knew the pastors were watching me, And considering me for leadership, I would have changed how I behaved. (laughs) Like, bro, that's exactly why we didn't tell you. (laughs) So know that your pastors, when we're going away on retreats and we're in meetings throughout the year, laboring at 7 a.m. on a Saturday morning while hopefully you're asleep or maybe up watching Bluey. (laughs) Part of what we do is saying, "Who, who do we need to invest in? Who do we see is stepping up? Who needs help? Who's who's wandering away and needs pulled back in? Who's God raising up in our midst? Who's he want to use us to raise up in our midst? Now, it's one thing for Jethro to say these things to Moses. It's a whole other thing for Moses to listen to him. Y'all remember, this is his father-in-law talking to him. And this was a stinging correction, wasn't it? But we read in verse 24. So Moses listened to the the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Wow. Moses chose able men out of all of Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. That is, leaders raised up. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart. And he went away to his own country. You see, my friends, in this passage, we see Jethro wisely speaking chaos back into order. And, you know, that's being a man. That's being a man. But we also see Moses humbly listening and obeying. Elsewhere, the Bible describes Moses. This is crazy. As the most humble person on the face of the earth. Wow. Like we think of humble as like self-deprecation. I'm the worst. I'm terrible. 
It's like walking around like God hates you. That's not humble. Look at Moses. He's leading forward the people of God boldly, winning battles, like parting seas, okay? And yet, humility is what allows him to be able to receive that from God and deliver it to the people. And listen, that too is being a man. It's not just being a jerk. When you put these two characteristics together, wisdom and humility, speaking boldly into the lives of others and allowing others to speak boldly into your life and receiving it, put those things together and what do you get? The ultimate means of multiplication. What do I mean? Consider the true Jethro, Jesus Christ who with infinite wisdom spoke chaos into order when he created the world by the word of his power. Consider also the better Moses, Jesus Christ, who with perfect humility listened and obeyed the voice of his father. That's a lot of weight on one man's shoulders. And yet he was the omnicompetent man but he became the ultimate servant leader. Like that's a lot of weight on one man's shoulders, but but whereas Moses' arms could not be lifted forever, Jesus had his nailed up so that they would remain forever open for his people as he forever conquers their enemies. They're not dropping. That's a man. And in dying for all the sins and all the afflictions that would make us stand around him needing his judgment, he became our mediator who received to himself God's wrath so that he could deliver to us God's grace. That's a man. Brothers and sisters, This is just like that big old hairy mama spider that wandered into our living room that night. Jesus was crushed. I was like, why, Brad? Did you really have to bring that one back up, man? This was so good. I had forgotten about that. I was tracking with you, and now we hear back at this spider again. Here's why. Because hours before his death, Jesus said these words. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these he will do. Because I'm going to the Father. The reason why that he was crushed on the cross was that the moment that the foot of sin and death was lifted off him, in a circumference about the size of the earth, he sent out his little ones into the world. He rose from the dead and ascended to the Father and sent forth his spirit to live in all who would believe, men and women, so that you could display his glory among the nations. He could do it all. But he's too good to keep all the work to himself. 
He is the true and better Adam who says with delight over you, sons and daughters, you are made for more. And here's the proof. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it. He said, this is my body which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took a cup of wine, and after blessing it, he gave it to his disciples. He said, this marks the new covenant in the shedding of my blood. And as often as you eat this bread and you drink from this cup, You're announcing the Lord's death until he returns. Today, church, we are announcing that Jesus is still multiplying his church. Right here in Antioch Church and among the nations. He's inviting you to be part of it. Our tradition here, if you're a baptized believer, whether or not you're a member of this church, is to come forward, to break off bread, to dip it into the juice, remembering what he has done for you, and in the act, proclaiming to the world that he is coming again to bring the ultimate order out of this chaos forever and ever. And if you're here today and you are not a believer, he doesn't look at you as a son or a daughter. He looks at you as one who has gone away from him and his family. And that he wanted to bring you back so badly that he didn't just send you a letter, but came down himself and died on a cross in your place and rose again to prove to you that he wants you back and that he has work for you to do in his church and among the nations. There'll be people in the back to pray with anyone who has any need if you'd like to talk to someone about what it means to put your faith in Jesus and follow him, come and talk to one of us. Let's pray. Father, we talked earlier about how silence is sometimes awkward for us because we live such busy lives. And yet, God, I thank you for a room full of people who have chosen, despite the lack of any precedent in our culture anymore for this, who've chosen to come and and sit in one spot for 45 minutes and listen to someone speaking to them. Lord, I pray your blessing upon that stillness by the power of your word and the delivery of your spirit to their hearts, that you would move in them in whatever way you choose to move in them in this moment and in the moments and days to come. Lord, I pray for each one that they would know with greater assurance than they walked in this morning that you love them and that you see them as fully affirmed sons and daughters of the King and that you have a work for them to do. And I pray for those who do not have confidence of that today, 
because they have not chosen to follow you and respond to you calling their name. I pray, Lord, that they would not walk away from here assuming that everything's good, but they would walk away from here compelled to follow you. If not in this moment, then very soon. But why not this moment? Have your way, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.